Well, a husband and wife, they were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Can you imagine? 50 years married. They were posing for pictures when the husband burst into tears. Well, the wife is smiling from ear to ear while her husband is weeping. She turns and she asks him, she says, honey, what's wrong? Why are you crying? He answers, well, 50 years ago today, your dad stuck a shotgun in my back and said if I didn't marry you, he'd see to it that I spent the next 50 years in jail. It just dawned on me if I'd taken heat, I'd be a free man tomorrow. <laughs> didn't quite think you'd be with it yet, so I decided to add, give you a little help this morning. Well, in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter teaches us how to have a no-regrets marriage. A no-regrets marriage. If you follow God's blueprint, then 50 years later, you'll be glad you tied the knot. And as far as instructions go, it's girls first. Peter begins by addressing the wives, their boundaries, their behavior, and their beauty. First one. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Nothing like starting out with a splash. Hey, God's plan for a Christian home calls for an ordered equality. Both partners are equal in value but different in roles. God appoints that in the home and in the church, the men are to lead and the women should follow. Of course, this doesn't mean that women are somehow inferior to men, not hardly. Women are often much smarter than men. But in marriage, God is painting a portrait of Christ's relationship with his church. Husbands are to love like Christ, and wives are to act like the church. In verse 1, the Greek word translated submissive is the word hupotasso. It means to arrange under or to work within a set of boundaries. See, the husband is called to pursue God's will for his life. And then those pursuits form the boundaries for the rest of the family. A wife then is free to pursue her own interests as long as she arranges her activities around her husband. Reminds me of what Billy Graham's wife Ruth once said. The best advice I can give to unmarried girls is to marry someone you don't mind adjusting to. God tailors the wife to fit the husband, not the husband to fit the wife. Well, wives, be submissive to your husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now realize, when the gospel was first preached, there were no Christian marriages because there were no Christians. Not yet. Invariably, some people became followers of Jesus while their spouses did not. And this put tremendous strain on the marriage. Imagine a lady coming to know Christ. Her whole world now changes. She falls in love with Jesus, yet can't share her most important passion with her husband. She desperately wants to share her faith. She wants him to come to know Jesus too. And these desperate housewives were prone to witness to their man constantly. They were putting tracks in his lunchbox and they were sticking little papers with Bible verses written on them in his underwear drawer. 
She was pushing. She was conjoling him at every turn. Yet trust me, Peter knows very few folks get nagged into heaven. And here Peter teaches Christian wives how to change their husbands. Ladies, would you like to know how to change him? Here it is. Not with words, but without a word. A Christian influences their spouse not by badgering or manipulating, but by godly, loving, winsome conduct. Peter says you change a spouse when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Chaste means purity. You change a spouse not by meddling, but by modeling grace and godliness and goodness. It was in 1805, a missionary from the Boston Missionary Society, he preached to the Indians in upstate New York. After the man's message, Chief Red Jacket told him, We'll wait a while and see what effect your preaching has upon your own people. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less inclined to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you've said. That's fair. And ladies, this may be the approach old Chief Stubbornheart, that man you're married to, is taking towards your newfound faith. When he sees that the gospel has changed your life, then perhaps he'll pay attention to what it can do for him. And then verse 3 tells us, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, I don't believe that Peter's saying that a woman can't style her hair or sport jewelry or wear fashionable clothes. All women love to accessorize. There's a funny quote from a woman in the movie Steel Magnolias. She says this. She says, the only thing that sets us apart from the animals is our ability to accessorize. Hey, a woman can dress mod, but modest. Peter's point is that a wife shouldn't use her outward attractiveness as a substitute for an inward beauty. A woman should emphasize the incorruptible beauty that neither time nor gravity, by the way, can take away from you. There's an old saying, marrying a woman for her good looks is like buying a house for its paint job. Eventually, that fresh paint chips off and fades away. That's why if a wife wants to remain beautiful in her husband's eyes and in God's sight, no less, nothing is more appealing, ladies, than a gentle and soft-spoken and submissive spirit. And then verse 5. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Wow! Sarah called Abraham Lord. My wife sometimes calls me Lord, but there's a little bit of facetiousness in her voice. But Sarah treated Abraham like the king of the castle. And guess what? He loved her in return. Remember, women need love, whereas men 
need respect. Ladies, you respect your husband and what he does for you, and he will lasso the moon for you. There is nothing he won't do. You know, two politicians, they were embroiled in a fiery debate when all of a sudden one of them, he shouts at his foe, he says, but what about those special interest groups that control you and manipulate you? The politician under attack, he shouted back, he said, now you wait just a minute, you leave my wife out of this. A wife does have a powerful sway over her husband. And a smart wife uses it to build him up, not tear him down. Now, Peter addresses the husbands. And he gives us three commands for how a husband should treat his wife. We need to dwell with her, understand her, and honor her. Verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them. And I can hear some of you husbands now, man, I got this. I live in the same house she lives in. I sleep in the same bed, eat at the same table. I'm dwelling with my wife. But living under the same roof isn't dwelling with your wife. Too many husbands are home in body only. God wants us engaged and involved in our families. Dwell with your wife and do so with understanding. I love the saying, every husband needs to know what makes his wife tick, what tickles her, and what ticks her off. Men, are you really trying to understand your wife? A Harvard University study revealed that the average married couple spends 37 minutes in communication. Not 37 minutes a day, 37 minutes a week. On a recent flight... I picked up a Delta magazine that had a report on the habits of pet owners. It said the average dog owner talks two hours a week to his dog. Now, when I put the two things together, it means that we speak three times as much to our dog as we do to our spouse. This is why men are clueless. Guys, you've got to take some time. You've got to put some effort into this. You need to communicate. Peter also commands us giving, her, giving honor to the wife. Are you treating your wife as special? Giving her honor? Are you compliment her? Do you brag on her? Do you encourage her? You know what it means to be appreciated at work for a job well done? Well, it means even more to your wife coming from her husband. You know, Peter says here, honor her as to the weaker vessel. And despite the feminist propaganda we hear today, on the whole, most men are physically stronger than most women. There are exceptions, but generally it's true. And yet here, Peter calls women weaker only as a crystal goblet is weaker than a plastic mug. You know, that mug is durable. It's rugged. It's easy to knock about, but no one would consider it more value than the goblet. That crystal's finery and delicacy make it more valuable. A wife brings a tenderness to the family that men lack. And Peter is telling us that we need to honor our wife for her sensitivity. Once I chaperoned my son's science class on a field trip to Jekyll Island, for three days, I learned more about marine biology than I ever wanted to know. But one lesson stuck. 
When a female chinaback crab molts or sheds her shell, it takes days for a new shell to harden. And this leaves the female vulnerable. Yet for those several days, the male crab covers her with his, be- his body. She actually attaches herself to his underbelly. And he carries her until she, her shell forms and she's once again able to protect herself. And men, there are times when your wife becomes vulnerable. There are times when she gets a little crabby. Do I need the laugh track? Come on. And when those times come, she needs, to, she needs for you to cover her and carry her, not criticize her. This is what it means to honor the wife as the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life. Remember, before she's your wife, she's God's girl. You need to treat her not as your servant, but as your sister in Christ. And for a very good reason, he says, that your prayers may not be hindered. Ever try to pray after a fight with your wife? I'm talking about prayers bouncing off the ceiling, man. My prayers don't even get off the ground. The only prayer I can pray with any kind of effectiveness after a fight with my wife is, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. When there's friction between Kathy and I, there's static on the line with God. And I need to repent. And then verse 8 tells us, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Remember who our writer is. It's Peter. This is the disciple who grabbed the sword and tried to split the skull of the Jewish henchman who had come to arrest Jesus. Malchus swerved his head at the last second. And Peter clipped off his ear. This was sword-slinging Peter, no less. And it's the same Peter who has now changed his tune. For he doesn't say, return evil for evil. He says, bless those who revile you. He's learned a new way of dealing with injustice. And I'm sure it started with Malchus. You remember Jesus picked up that severed ear out of the dirt and he miraculously reattached it to Malchus's head. He returned good for evil. He returned blessing for cursing. And shouldn't his followers now do the same? In the coming days, Peter saw Jesus take all the hate the world could muster and retaliate with love. And in doing so, Jesus won our forgiveness You know, Peter had always wanted to follow Jesus. Now he's finally learned how. And then he says in verse 10, For he he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You know, here's a good way to enjoy life. See to it that you think before you speak. And I like that little acrostic, think. Hey, T, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is what you're considering saying inspirational or is it encouraging? 
end. Is it necessary? Does this really have to be said? And K, is it kind? Think, for if it's not all five true and helpful and inspirational and necessary and kind, then you need to zip your lip. It shouldn't be said. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I read where the average American office worker today receives 121 emails per day. 121 emails. Yet imagine God's inbox. How many prayers does God receive each day? And yet Peter says his eyes and his ears are open to them all. He sees and hears everyone who trusts righteously in Jesus. And then verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So live this way. Repay evil with good. Think before you speak. Seek after peace. These are good traits to have that should endure people to you. But even if you do suffer for doing right, don't be afraid. For God can still cause his blessings to abound. For when trouble arises, here's what you do. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Persecution becomes an opportunity for witness. And so Peter says, be ready. Are you ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you? Once my brother Ken, he went downtown to do some street witnessing with some friends. And he happened to approach this guy. He was wearing a turban. He had this long robe on. Ken started telling him about Jesus. But this guy was prepared, perhaps more so than my brother. The guy started quoting scripture. Now he was twisting it and he was taking it out of context, but he was good at it. And he ended up painting my brother into a corner. Well, that's when he pulled out a pocket New Testament out of his robe and he waved it in Ken's face. And he said, do you know how David killed Goliath? And that's when the man answered his own question. He said, David killed Goliath with his own sword, and that's what I've just done to you. It was at that moment, my brother says, that he decided to go to school to learn exactly why he believed what he believed. He got serious about his faith. Ken prepared himself to give a defense for the hope that's within him. Are you preparing yourself to do the same? We need to be able to have answers to people's questions. Verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, all suffering is not created equal. I know folks who are persecuted by others and probably rightly so. They act like jerks. That's why they're getting persecuted, not because they're Christians. There's no merit in that kind of suffering. If you suffer for evil, you know, there, there's no reward for that. 
If you suffer, make sure it's for a noble cause. Like Jesus, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Jesus suffered in a noble way. He suffered to atone for our sin. He died in our place once and for all, the just for the unjust. You make sure that when you suffer, it's for a noble cause. Jesus died that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. Wow. Recall, there was 120 years of divine long-suffering before the flood. You remember Noah worked and warned the people for 12 decades. Don't ever say God's not patient. He is. He wants people to repent. Now here we're told that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. In Ephesians 4 we're told that after Jesus died on the cross, he descended into Hades. Now that's not hellfire per se, but to Abraham's bosom. It's the place that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 16. It was the Old Testament home of the believing dead. And it was there that Jesus preached during those three days between his death and resurrection. He preached of God's grace in his work on the cross, not as a second chance, but as a validation of what the people had chosen. See, to those Old Testament saints who had believed in God's promise, Jesus' sermon was validation that God had sent his atoning sacrifice, that Jesus was the Savior. But to the disobedient spirits who heard him, occupying that place of punishment, those who had rejected God's promise, Jesus' sermon in presence was validation that their punishment was just. They were getting what they deserved. Now, Peter continues to speak about this time of the flood he says, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Remember, only eight souls heeded Noah's warning and boarded the boat. The history of the human race was salvaged by eight people. Can you imagine? Noah, his three sons, and their wives. Today, the flood of Noah has tremendous historical and geological relevance. There is a semblance of this story in almost every ancient culture. Every ancient people attests to the historical reliability of Noah's flood. And the best explanation of the enormous fossil record in the earth's crust is the massive effects of a global flood. The flood of Noah has put a permanent imprint on society and on our history. But the flood's relevance is not only historical and geological, it's also typological. For he says in verse 21, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now Peter isn't talking about water baptism. That accomplishes little more than taking a bath. Literally speaking. It's spiritual baptism that cleanses us inwardly. In Christ we die to sin then we rise to new life. We're spiritually baptized, and that spiritual cleansing does for us what the flood did for its survivors. 
we escape judgment through what Jesus has done for us and we receive a new life. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Jesus has risen. He's been exalted to God's right hand. Now all that he died to cleanse is under his authority. Now all creation answers to Jesus. Peter is clear. And then chapter 4 he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now Peter's saying that persecution has a purifying effect on our faith. You know, when you're persecuted, it crystallizes your commitment. When you're forced to face physical loss for following Christ, it causes you to count the cost. It really forces you to take a stand. Ironically, persecution in the long run encourages the believer. Verse 2, he says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. In other words, once you pay a price for following Jesus, then there's no turning back. Persecution creates an all-in kind of attitude. He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now apparently, Peter's readers had quite a past. Some of them must have been college students, former frat house guys, when you read what they were doing. Sounds like a frat house. Sexual lewdness, wild parties, Drinking games. They, they made a sport out of getting high. And Peter challenges them. Haven't you wasted enough of your life? It's time to serve the Lord. It's time to count for Christ. He says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Dissipation means out of control partying. A rager attitude. It, it, he says it's how you used to live. You know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you, you've heard what Peter is describing here. Folks are saying, oh, he's no fun anymore. Oh, he used to be the life of the party. Man, he's, he's, he's no fun now. She, she used to be cool. What happened to her? The snickers of former friends. They don't understand why you want it out. Yet in the end, they, they'll be the ones that are taking it seriously. They won't be snickering in the end. For Peter says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. One day, they'll meet their maker. He says, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. That they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the Spirit. And again, Peter is speaking of Jesus preaching to those in Hades. In the end, they're going to be judged like men alive today. Did they believe in God's promises? See, everyone gets judged similarly. Did you believe? That's the 
plumb line did you believe? But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Peter believed he was living in the last days. And in a sense, he was. Since Jesus ascended to heaven, nothing else needs to happen prophetically before he comes again. You and I need to be looking for Jesus and praying always. And then he says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. Notice, above all things. What's most important? That you have love for one another. Why? For love will cover a multitude of sins. On our high school baseball team, we had an outfielder who couldn't catch a beach ball. No kidding. Every ball hit in his direction was a potential disaster. Ball go his way, we'd all cringe. But he was always in the lineup since he could hit. Man, he could hit. And hitting was so vital that it covered a multitude of errors. This is what Peter says about love. You can be a bumbling, stumbling believer. Man, you can have some really rough edges about you. But if you love a lot, God will find a place for you on his team. You don't have to be skilled or gifted to count for God. For he packs his lineup with heavy-hitting lovers. Love will cover a multitude of sins. And then verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God bestows on each of us certain spiritual gifts. And we should use our gift. In fact, it's use it or lose it. And notice the gift mentioned here in verse 9. It's the gift of hospitality. I like this. There's some folks who have the gift of making other people feel at home and loved and wanted. God works many a miracle through this vital gift. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. It seems there's also a spiritual gift of speaking God's word. If you have that, then speak only what he tells you. We need God's word, not more opinions. And then there's also the gift of ministry or service. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified Through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't be surprised by persecution. Friends, If this world nailed Jesus to the cross, don't expect it to roll a red carpet out for you. Don't consider it strange. All Christians need to warm up to the idea of fiery trials. We've been warned. Persecution could be on our horizon. And we should be able to rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. At times, Christians are asked to share in Christ's momentary sufferings. We'll also share in his eternal glory. 
We suffer today, but we'll rejoice forever. And then he says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. You know, we live at a time and in a place where following Jesus is relatively easy. It is. But in short order, it all can change. We've seen how quickly things can change over the past six weeks. And in short order, things can change where following Jesus means drawing fire from this world, being treated unfairly, suffering for Christ's sake. It can happen. Peter warns us, don't think it's strange when you experience the fiery trial. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in this matter. If you suffer as a believer, you glorify God. But if you're ridiculed for doing evil or for just sticking your nose in other people's business, then you're bringing shame to Christ's name. That's not the suffering that's, that's admirable. He says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. You know, I have no doubt that the biggest obstacle to the evangelization of the world is the selfishness and hypocrisy in the church. I have no doubt. We can't draw people out of the darkness if we as Christians are asleep in the light. We can't. The judgment of God should begin with the church. You heard about the person who said the reason they became a Christian was they had a friend who was a Christian. And then the next person said, the reason I'm not a Christian is because I had a friend who was a Christian. It's amazing the influence that we have. Judgment needs to come to the house of God first. We need to get it in gear. We need to be serious about following Jesus and loving one another. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God isn't squeamish, he's saying, about disciplining his own children, don't think for a second he won't hammer a wicked world. Verse 18, now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? In other words, if a Christian limps into heaven with a poor witness, where does that leave the unbelievers? We owe it to the world around us to shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ and to give them a chance to come to know the God that we know. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And again, notice this. It is possible to suffer according to the will of God. Some Christians think any suffering is a sign that you miss the will of God somewhere along the way. Not so. Here he says, those who suffered according to the will of God. In this world, following God can get you into trouble. And then he says in chapter 5, the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. Notice Peter classifies himself as a fellow elder. This is why it's so preposterous for Roman Catholicism to refer to Peter as the first pope. Peter never exalted himself above a fellow elder. 
And he calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Though Peter followed at a distance, he was there when Jesus was tried and when he was scourged and when he was nailed to the cross. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' sufferings. And he was also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. You remember, Peter saw Jesus' sufferings and his glory. You remember back in Matthew 17 on top of Mount Hermon with his disciples by his side. We're told that Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. His humility was peeled back and the disciples got a peek of Jesus' glory. And these were all experiences that humbled Peter. That made him say, hey, I'm not first among the elders. I'm a fellow elder. I'm a witness of the sufferings and the glory of Christ. And then Peter encourages his fellow elders, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. You know, the word pastor means shepherd. And it's my job to shepherd the flock of God. I tend and mend. I feed and lead. And i got to be vigilant, for the flock is vulnerable to predators. You know, pastors are to serve as overseers, Peter says. The word elder means overseer. A pastor sees the big picture. He thinks ahead. He looks out for God's people. He should be a few steps ahead of the rest of the flock. There was a time when our elders spent most of their time reviewing finances and conducting business. Today we have other structures that handle those tasks. We freed up our elders to do what God has called them to do, which is minister to God's people. That's what's most important. And they're to serve as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Being an elder should never be a duty. It's a blessing. It's a privilege. It should be done cheerfully. And not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Financial reward should never be the goal of a spiritual leader. He says, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And this is so important. An elder or a pastor shouldn't have to throw his weight around. Shouldn't have to pull rank. He leads by example. The kind of example that earns the people's trust. Verse 4 And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Elders and pastors are under shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And he promises a crown to those leaders who serve his interests faithfully. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. That's good wisdom. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Did you hear that? God opposes the proud. Hey, God lines up on the other side of the ball from the proud. If you're proud, that means you're not on God's team. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You you need to work on being humble. God will exalt you in his due time. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. We all need to turn our cares into prayers. A friend of mine once told me, he said, Sandy, 
Always turn your cares over to God before you go to bed. He's going to be up all night anyway. God can be trusted. So be sober. Be vigilant. In other words, be on guard. Why? Because your adversary, and you've got one, the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You know, I've been told that the roaring lion is not the one you worry about. He's just a decoy. When little Bambi starts prancing down the path, the roaring lion is the one who jumps out and starts snarling and growling. He makes fierce noises. But all he can do is roar. He's the old, toothless lion. He still remembers how to look menacing, but he's as harmless as a kitty cat. Yet it's the roaring lion that strikes fear in the heart of little Bambi. And so she spins around and she flees in the opposite direction right into the jaws of the young lions that are waiting for the kill. See, Satan is the roaring lion. He's the toothless one. Jesus has declawed him on the cross. Now by the power of Jesus, Satan is as harmless as a kitty cat. The only way he can defeat you is through fear and intimidation. Stand your ground and trust in Jesus and Satan will be forced to flee. Notice verse 9. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Don't run. Resist. If you run, you turn your back. And you expose the only part of your anatomy not protected. Remember Ephesians 6 describes the armor of God that we're to put on? And there's protection for every body part except the back. That's why we shouldn't back down. We need to stand strong. For James 4 verse 7 tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Muster a resistance and Satan is forced to flee. And persevere, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You know, we're never alone in our suffering for Christ. There are always Christians the world over enduring persecution. This world is a hostile place. And then verse 10, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, and compared to eternity, guys, it's just a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. In other words, in Christ, the best is always yet to come. For to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now Peter closes with a few personal remarks. By Silvanus. That is Silas, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. Silas was Paul's spiritual sidekick on his second and third missionary journeys. Apparently at this time, Silas was with Peter, and he possibly penned this letter that Peter dictated to him. He says, by Salvanus, Peter wrote, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And then he says, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. Now it's possible that Peter wrote from the actual city of Babylon. Yet there's no record or even a tradition of him getting that far east. A better interpretation might be that this is the spiritual Babylon. 
which was the capital of idolatry, the capital of paganism, which was the city of Rome. And here it's the church at Rome that sends its greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Peter had the same kind of relationship with Mark that Paul had with Timothy. Mark was Peter's young protege, his son in the faith. In fact, the early church fathers, Irenaeus and Eusebius, tell us that Mark's gospel was in reality the reflections of Peter recorded by his disciple Mark. The letter ends, greet one another with a kiss of love. Notice not a lustful, erotic kiss, not a hypocritical Judas kiss, but a holy kiss. Or or perhaps I should translate it, greet one another with a good old elbow bump. That's the quarantine version. But greet each other with a welcoming gesture. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And there's 1 Peter.